Let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we, uh, we thank you, dear Lord, for your word. We thank you for its wonderful truth. We thank you for all its work that it does within our lives, dear Lord. As, um, as a pure milk of the word of God, dear Father, it nourishes us in ways, dear Lord, that we don't even comprehend, we don't even understand. Your word teaches us, dear Father, that the water that purifies and, and waters this earth and has it grow, dear Lord, is, is very, very similar to the wonderful work that your word does within our lives. And I just praise you for it. Just ask you, dear Father, you'd give us peace this evening and, and a wonderful blessing, dear Lord, that we would receive more of the truth and the joy of your word, that we might be inspired indeed to live for a purpose, um, a purpose filled in the work of Christ and the gospel of our Lord and our Saviour. We thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. I'm going to be reading the same text that I read this morning, and it's found in Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, so if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, I'll read verses 1 to 10. Elements of this, what I'd like you to consider as we, as we read it, is the title of the message this morning was The Purpose for Which He Came, and the title for the message this evening is The Purpose for Which We Go, and the two are, are truly interlinked. Let's have a look at verse 1, chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans. And he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost." greatest event that ever happened in my life was when God um, didn't reward me according to what I deserved. Um, when I heard the word of God and, 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 and the gospel, um, and he saved me. We, we really do, as Christians that are born again, really take for granted that incredible work. Uh, every single one of us who has been born again, by the Spirit of God, has had this miraculous work done upon their own lives. And, and we realise it was nothing that we did on our own part, but it was everything that God did for us. When you're at school, they, they, they ask you, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, you need to know what you want to be when you grow up, and you need to know that at the tender age of like, I don't know, 14, 15... 16, because all the subjects that are going to come after that are going to help facilitate that purpose for which 
uh, your, your desire to move towards, right? Uh, I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, I was 16 years old, and they're asking me how to decide right now um, what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I thought at the time, well, I sort of need to work out what, what's the purpose of my life, really. I mean, it's pretty hard to know what it is you're going to do unless you actually have a purpose for which to do it, you know. Um, but I, I wasn't a believer. I didn't know God. I didn't know that I was created for a purpose. I didn't know there was any meaning to the world or any purpose to the world. I, I, I thought it was all about me, you know, and I actually liked thinking that it was all about me, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. But it's, um, it's incredible. You ask a, a, an agnostic or an atheist... Um, they sort of realise that there, there really is no purpose. For, see, for them, there is no such thing as purpose. There's no purpose. Everything is a complete, complete accident. Um, purpose isn't a question that's easily answered. Um, but for the theist and the Christian who believes that the universe was actually created on purpose, we recognise that things must have a purpose. Make sense? Yes. All right, so, so um, a purposeless universe at its core is an ultimately purposeless existence. Encouraged? Really good, really good. And that's, and that's not unusual. I mean, that's actually understood by the atheists. They realise this. Richard Dawkins said something uh, really incredible. He actually, Richard Dawkins is a famous atheist, just in case you don't know him. He actually, he's one of those, he just hates God. Something he doesn't believe it, he hates it. It seems to be the topic of his conversation wherever he goes. He said this, he says, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Wow, eh? No wonder we've got self-esteem classes in schools today. You know? If everything is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. You know, if there's nothing and no purpose to life, then that's a pretty miserable existence. In other words, there's no reason for you to be here. No reason for your existence. So asking me what I wanted to do when I grew up, well, my, I, I really didn't know. This is a, this is a you call this nihilism. Nobody knows who, what nihilism means? Nothing. Yeah, well, it's like nothingism. Yeah, it's like there, there is no purpose to anything. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, the, the, the God is dead and we killed him psychologist and philosopher, said in his book Will to Power, he said, Nihilism is not only the belief that everything deserves to perish, but one actually puts one's shoulder to the plough one destroys. One actually puts one's shoulder to the plough one destroys. Uh, in other words, not only does everything lead to nothing, but our very efforts bring about that end. Right, our very efforts, everything that we try and do, actually help bring about nothing. You know, we, this is a small idea, you know. It's a small idea. But if you believe this, it actually has huge consequences. And this, this small idea is permeating our society today. This small idea that we are in a purposeless universe and there is no reason for our own existence is taught within our schools, it's taught within our governments, it's taught within basically everything that they try and put together. It's, it's taught continually. I was sort of sharing with Maria, my wife, how when we grew up 
in school when we grew up, as we were growing up, we didn't actually know anybody that was our age that either suffered from depression or would take their own lives. We didn't know anybody. There was, it was just completely... We, we just didn't have a clue that there was anybody that would actually do something like that, you know? Today, well, you know, looking at my, my, my son's school and daughter's school and, and, and people that have actually taken their own lives and, and that are suffering with depression, it, this is an epidemic today. It's an epidemic proportions. The people that don't have a purpose, they don't only know, not know what their purpose is, but they, they, they feel like there is no value to their lives and no purpose to their lives. You know, it helps us understand, you know, Peter's, Peter's wonderful statement for, for those of us that are Christians, those of us who know the truth, when he says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. When, when, you, can, when you can smile when things are going bad, when you can have joy within your life, when you can have a spring in your step, you know, there's two things that are going on. Either they reckon you're on something or, or <laughs> something's in you. Something is very, very different about you, you know. Um, and they will ask you for the hope that is within you. They will ask you, are you ready to give an answer? Do you know the answer? Do you know the answer for your purpose? Do you know the purpose for your life? I have to tell you something really interesting. The purpose for your life is no different from the purpose for my life. And it's the same purpose that Christ came. It's the same purpose for the church. We just need to understand its impact and understand why it's so important. There's a purpose for your life. You know, for me, it took 20 more years to discover my purpose. It took me 20 years to find out what it is. That, I was 35 years old. I still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. You know? By the time I was 36, I, I pretty much had a clue. I pretty much knew what it was that I wanted to be when I grew up. And it is, it is all around, um, around what God has done within my life to make a difference in the lives of others. Um, Jesus knows the plight of the world. He knows that the world is riddled with sin and guilt. He knows that their continuation in this way will see them in hell for eternity because they did not believe in the only begotten Son of God. They can save them from their sin. But not many within the world would hear it. Not many will hear it. Even when he gave his life as a ransom for many, they would not believe he came for his own and his own received him not. He came to bring light into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. I was explaining this to a gentleman who was trying to understand the truth of the gospel and the truth of the resurrection, even though he was a Christian. And he was saying, how do you explain the resurrection to somebody that's, that's a non-believer? We believe that because we're already Christians. And we sort of said, no, that's actually not, not, not the way. You don't, you don't bring somebody to Christ to try and convince them that God is. If, if he didn't die for them and rose from the dead, then there is no salvation, there is no resurrection. And that is the principal thing with respect to the gospel.
Bible says here, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He gave his life for it and he rose from the dead to tell us all of it and made the simplest of commands. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Mark chapter 16. So the Lord knew his purpose. He knew his reason for coming. In John 18, 37, he said, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So what does he say to us? Mark chapter 16, verses 14 to 16. He says, Afterward, it says, Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. What was his purpose? His purpose. <clears throat> was to bring salvation to many, wasn't it? What, it? what is it that saves you? Believing. What is it that damns you? Believe not. It's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. What's our purpose? Well, effectively, it's to go to seek to save that which is lost. So if his purpose is to seek and to save that which was lost, our purpose then is to go to seek to save that which was lost. Okay, We bring the word of God. We share the word of God. Wherever we have opportunity, we share the word of God with somebody. We don't have to enter into mass church exercises. A lot of the times I was sort of talking a little bit before with Angel, we seem to, we seem to want to tick a box all the time. We, we want to do these things and we tick a box. Yep, done. Okay, done that. I've done my evangelism. That's it. I've done that. Good, I can go home and you know, just jump back on my PlayStation. Or go back to work or, or read a novel, you know. Now, the Lord doesn't actually say that. It's just for us to go. That's part of our walk. It's part of our command. It's part of our purpose. That is a calling. That's our purpose. There's no higher calling and there is no higher purpose. There is no purpose that can have a greater effect. There is no purpose that can have a better result. There is no purpose that will give the greater reward. And there is no purpose that can facilitate a greater joy. There's nothing better than doing that for which you were created to do. There's nothing better. There's nothing better. Can you imagine that? I mean, imagine you know what you're here for. You know? You know what you're here to do and you actually do it. You know? Mate. The one thing that I find about the gospel, when you share the gospel with somebody, it makes your whole day. You know, I could be in a, in a bike shop with somebody and we're talking about things and all of a sudden something, something comes up that triggers a, uh, a conversation about God, you know. I don't have to take them from atheism to being born again in one fell swoop. All I have to do is what Paul was teaching and saying. You know, one plants the seed, others water, but God gives the increase. You know, and when I do that, I come home and I like, oh, I just shared the gospel with, you know, someone at the uh, autobahn. There was one guy a little while ago, you know. Or I shared the gospel with my new project manager that I had employed. Interesting, I just put him on and we're talking about God, you know. He'd never even thought about the things of God and, and uh, so he asked me for a Bible. <laughs> you know, what a praise, you know. He hasn't read it yet, 
I've got to put that on part of his KPI. <laughs> anyway, so I've got to, yeah. But, but, you know, the truth of the matter is they never thought about it. There's, there, do you know there's people out there, they're not antagonistic to the gospel. They, they just never thought about it. It's, it's, never, it's never even come into their minds, you know. They've actually just never thought about it. And, and what are we to say? What are we to say? Here we are saying on the one hand that, that these people are going to stand and give an account for their sin. And that account is condemned. In other words, because of their sin and their separation from God, they are going to spend eternity in hell. Oh, I don't know if you've ever really thought about that, you know. There, there is no time in eternity. We know that. So we can't sit there and say it's going to be a long time. What we can say is what Dante understood. And that was, abandon all hope, ye that enter here. You know, there is no hope in hell. There is no way out. It will be there forever. And it is a place of these people that, that, that we should be at least loving enough to say, God loves you. You know, God loves you. And there is purpose for your life. But your purpose for your life is found in Him. You need to repent of your sin and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and accept that salvation that you would have eternity. Someone sort of commented to us a while ago, and it was a bit of a shame for us, and that was that um, you actually believe that if we, don't, if we don't believe in God, then we're going to spend eternity in hell? I said, yeah. But why haven't you ever shared that with us? What sort of love is it that doesn't actually tell us and warn us? What sort of love is it? Now, there were missionaries that went out and, and went to a country, and I can't remember the land. It was, I think I was reading Hudson Taylor. That's right, it was Hudson Taylor I was reading, and, the, uh, and some of the China missions there. And they said, how long, and they asked him, how long have you known this? How long has your country known this truth? And he said, oh, about 120 years. You've known this truth for 120 years, and only now. Your nation sends, us, sends people to tell us of that. What sort of love is that? It's a challenge. It's a challenge for you too. You know, Do you really believe the gospel? Do you really believe what the Bible actually teaches about the state of the world? I look at how many people live in Ballarat and I look at how many people are in this church. I know, yeah, I understand. There are many people that don't want to hear the gospel. I understand that. Well, my question is not those who don't want to hear the gospel. My question to you is, are you at least giving them the opportunity? Are you at least giving them the opportunity? So it's a purpose that is made evident to the world. Right? So the first point of the message, and I'll try and run through these four points relatively quickly. Luke 19, verses 1 to 4. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. What a blessed thing we see here. We see a man, small of stature, but great with wealth. He had clearly heard before of the fame of Jesus, and he, and he sought to see Jesus, who he was. 
He did all that he could to get a vantage point, a good vantage point. He couldn't see, so he had to climb up a tree to get a good, a good view of it. For the purpose for which Christ came had already gone before by reputation into all the world about him. The text here says that he ran before and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Obviously the things that he heard about Jesus was good, was positive. There was something about this man that he needed to know. And, and also others must have known because the text says that he was to pass that way. There was already an understanding amongst the people of where exactly Jesus was going to be coming through. And he heard about that. Now, understand we're in the 19th chapter of Luke. So Jesus hasn't just started his ministry. All right? In, in, the, in the next chapter, in chapter 20, the rulers are already starting to plot against him. By chapter 21, uh, we see Christ speaking of the things of the last days. But chapter 22, the Passover is looming. This time where the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him. Okay, So we're talking about pretty much the end of his ministry. 19 chapters have already gone before. So it's reasonable to presume that by the reputation of Jesus had gone already before him. Notice that Zacchaeus seems excited to see Jesus, giving each of us an understanding that the ministry and the purpose for which Jesus came was, was not in vain. It wasn't an empty one. It was a positive one. There was good news. It was good news. It wasn't bad news. It was good news. That's the reason why he was excited to see him. There was good news. And he knew that Jesus was the one to look out for and, and, and one even to be a beneficiary of. So three full years of ministry, at the very least, made itself evident to the world around him in such a way it's a faithful ministry that's made evident to the world around us. Scripture teaches and history teaches that those who are truly dedicated their lives to the work of the gospel, to the work of the ministry of Christ, have the reputation of this work already go before them. You know, we, we long, as a church, we long to hear a gospel preacher. And, and if there's word that there's a preacher around that is sharing the gospel and that is fervent in the word of God, oh, I want to have him preaching at my church. You know, I want to have him there because if there is something that God is working with in his life, then I want to have him there. Why? Because my purpose is the same as his. I want to see the gospel preached and I want to see people's hearts changed for the truth of the word of God. That's the desire. Good news travels fast. Good news travels fast for those that are willing to receive it. 1 Corinthians 4.9 says, For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. A spectacle. People are viewing us. They're viewing us. They're seeing us. If we're out there, they're seeing us. Hebrews 10.3 refers to us as a gazing stock. It says, Partly, whilst ye were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. See, it didn't matter whether, whether um, Christians were being persecuted or they were being exalted. The point of it was that the gospel was being preached and it was being received. There were people that were hearing about the truth of God in, in lives and what was happening around them. Many people followed the preaching and the teaching of George Whitefield. Who's heard of George Whitefield? Heard of George Whitefield? He's a, he's a preacher that was there during the time of uh, 
what was known as a, well, the Great Revival, the Great Awakening, the Great Awakening. My goodness, we think that today people don't want to hear the Word of God because we're in a pagan society. Do you know this Great Awakening can happen today? Do you know there's no reason why we can't have a revival within our own culture? You know, the first place we need a revival is in our own hearts. You know, we have to have a revival in our own hearts. We have to have an understanding of the gospel. We have to have a desire and a passion for souls. We have to be broken-hearted for the lost. It's not going to be a revival unless we repent of our, um, yeah, of our own. You know, we're so focused on ourselves. It's not about us. I'm going to tell you guys, it's not about you. It's not about you. Your life and your lot is set. If you're born again. There is nothing, there is nothing, there is no end of your life that's going to end bad. Do you know that? No matter what it is that you go through, there's no part of your life that's going to end terribly. Nothing. But you know, for the unbeliever, for those that have not repented, for those that stand condemned, do you know that there is no part of their life, no aspect of their life that is going to end well? I wonder the Bible says that we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. We have to have a passion for the lost. There has to be something that goes before us, the good news. In Middletown, Connecticut, there was a humble farmer there uh, by the name of Nathan Cole. Now, the words have gotten prettied up a little bit. I've read the original and the words in the original was, he, he, he didn't speak well, but he loved writing in his diary. And, um, and I didn't have the ability to get that down, so I ended up just getting one that's sort of been a little bit prettied up and a little bit made a little bit more clear. He's speaking about, he's heard of the coming of George Whitefield. He's heard of it. And, and he says this, he says, I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and ran home to my wife, telling her to make ready quickly to go and hear Mr Whitefield preach at Middletown. Then run to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing that I should be too late. As I came nearer the road, I heard a noise of something, like a low rumbling thunder, and presently found it was the noise of horses' feet coming down the road. Every horse seemed to go with all his might to carry his rider to hear news from heaven for the saving of souls. It made me tremble. You understand? People are coming to hear George Whitfield preach. You know, he preached in the outdoors. He, he preached in the outdoors. He didn't preach in a church. Matter of fact, if he preached in a church, he'd be limiting his congregation. When he preached, he preached in front of thousands. There were 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people that he's preaching to. No help of any uh, little sort of devices that helped amplify his voice either. We don't know how that worked. But there were thousands of people. And he says this, he says, I turned and looked towards the great river and saw ferry boats running swift backward and forward, bringing over loads of people. And the land and banks over the river looked black with people and horses. All along the 12 miles I saw no man at work in his field, but all seemed to be gone. And when I saw Mr. Whitfield come upon the scaffold, he looked almost angelical, a young, slim, slender youth before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted countenance. And my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he came along, it solemnised my mind and put me into a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God, and a sweet, solemn solemnity came upon his brow. And my hearing him preach gave me a, a heart wound, 
By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. That's a witness from a man who just penned in his diary about the wonderful work of God going before him. But it doesn't stop there. We hear now of of the the post-mortem work of the five missionaries in 1956 who who sought to make contact with a tribe of people called the Uka tribe in Ecuador. Some of you would know who I'm speaking about. They were speared to death while trying to make contact with these people and uh, to save their souls after seeking and finding these so clearly lost. That's what they were there for. They desired to save their souls. They sought them, they found them, they knew that they were lost, and they wanted to save their souls. And they were killed by the very people that they had gone out to save. It's an interesting resemblance of the work of Christ, isn't it? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Ah, that's, a, that's the picture of those that are burning for the Lord. Incredibly, these same people were evangelised by the widows of two of these missionaries. They were evangelised by the widows of two of these missionaries. They were saved. Even the very men that speared them, that killed them, were saved by the witness of the two wives of two of the missionaries. Matter of fact, the people themselves even changed their own names from the Auka, which is the savages, to the Hurani, which is the people. A lot of people came to faith. The Moravian missionaries, incredible stories there. A story told of young men who sold themselves to the slave masters of the West Indies. Would you do that? Would you do that? Do you understand that they understood the gospel? They understood that their life is set, that their hope is in Christ. They understood it. They knew it and they were filled with joy and they literally sold their own selves to the slave masters so they can go over there and preach to the slaves. Any hope of deliverance? No. They bound themselves for life to these slave masters. And as they were leaving, as they were leaving, they, they, they shouted out their, uh, their farewell to their family. And their friends, people that they're never going to see again, they shouted out and they said, to win for the lamb that was slain the reward of his suffering. This became what is known as the Moravian battle cry in missions. Count Zinzendorf was the founder of the Moravians and he said he had but one passion. Tis he and he only. Tis he and he only. At the time of the death of their founder, no less than 226 Moravians had gone to places ranging from the Arctic to the tropics, from the Far East to the, Af- to the American Midwest. Wherever those they sent died, there were always those who offered to take their places. It had been reported that in the first 20 years of the Moravians' existence, they sent more of their members overseas than the whole Protestant church had sent in the preceding 200 years. Brethren, when there is an understanding of the internal importance of what Christ has done for all of mankind, when love for the lost consumes you and it burdens your heart, when you truly know and realise the plight of the lost, the reason God sent his son to die, only then will your heart and ministry be one that will go before you 
and be a purpose made evident to the world. It's a purpose that's made evident to the world. Point two, a purpose that calls all to take part. In verse 5 in Luke chapter 19, it says this, when, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. There's none excluded for the work of the ministry of Christ. Those that even benefit from his work also becomes ministry, ministers through their own witness. The witness of their own lives. Their testimony alone bears them witness that they are Christ's and that he is theirs. We read further in the passage that Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Could we possibly think that the testimony of one who was well known as a sinner before the people did not in itself become a witness of Christ and his ministry? Look, I don't know what your life was like before you were saved. I don't know. Because really, I really don't know you all. Sorry. But I don't know what your life was like before you were saved. But if your life after you were saved is pretty much the same as the life that you had before you were saved, there might be a chance that you're actually not saved. There might be a chance. There might be a strong chance. There has to be a change. There has to be a change. And it's that change that witnesses of the eternal work of God. So you, you, can't, you, can't actually, you can't actually have an encounter with the God of the universe and not be changed. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't. There has to be a change. I understand that we backslide and understand, I understand all of that, but there must be a change. And if there is none, and your life doesn't bear witness to one, there's a good chance you're not saved. There has to be a burden for the lost. There has to be a desire at least to share the gospel. Fearful though it might be, fearful though it might be, you know I've got no problem standing here behind a pulpit and I can talk to a thousand people. I've got no problems with that. Do you know what it's like to share the gospel with one person? You know? I don't understand why there's that fear. I don't understand. But it's something that needs to be overcome. We have to have a burden for the gospel and we share it anyway. And the more you share it, the stronger you are at sharing it. Why do we understand the power of a changed life to witness to the grace of Christ? Grow in him. Be renewed day by day. To the truth of his word. And watch to see the work the Lord will do within your life. The Lord will do a work continually within a life touched by grace. Is there a difference? Can there be a change? In 1833, Charles Darwin visited the South Sea island of Tierra del Fuego in search of his elusive missing link. <laughs> so Charles Darwin was looking for the missing link. And when he'd seen the inhabitants, he actually thought he had witnessed a lower stratum of humans that would give some credibility to his theory. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, we ask scientists why we don't see evidence of transitional humans, yeah? We ask them, how come we don't see monkeys turning into people? How, how come we don't see people in transition somewhere? And their excuse is and their answer is, billions of years. 
Their founder, Charles Darwin, the high priest of their calling, was actually looking for a missing link, looking for something in transition. He's expecting to find it. But Darwin had seen these people in Tierra del Fuego and he writes this in his diary and he says the, the Fuegians are in a more miserable state of barbarism than I ever expected to have seen any human being. The expression of their faces is inconceivably wild and their tones and gesticulations are far less intelligible than those of domestic animals. That's his description of the people in Tierra del Fuego. That's, that's the barbarism, that's the savagery of the people that are there. For over 30 years, Charles Darwin would have been boasting about what he had seen. For 30 years, he would have been confirmed within his own heart, within his own mind, that the idea of evolution and the idea of this, this transition and an upper crust of, of human beings, he would have been convinced that that was true until he revisited the island in 1869, 36 years later. And what he saw was not a continuation of depravity. It wasn't a continuation of the barbarism that he saw the first time he was there. But he saw a thriving community of homes, schools and churches. With every picture of tranquility that Mr Darwin was also used to. What was the mysterious work? All of a sudden, what was this, what was this evolution that actually occurred? And Tierra del Fuego was visited a number of years earlier with the gospel and the word of God by a missionary named John G. Patton. Mm. The word of God has the ability to change life. The gospel has the ability to change lives. It does its work. Do you believe it? Will you trust it? Will you let the word of God do its work through you first? Will you share the gospel? Talk to somebody about the Lord. But let the gospel change your heart first. It has to. Charles Darwin admitted it. He reluctantly um, gave himself acceptance of what was happening. And he wrote this entry in his diary. I certainly should have predicted that not all the missionaries in the world could have done what has been done. Think he was blown away? I think he was absolutely amazed. And there's, there's so many stories like this. I mean, we could, we could talk about so many different events in the missionary world that we've seen of complete changes within <coughs> cultures. And it's great to have atheists and, and, and evolutionaries acknowledge the work of God. Well, why don't we? We need to acknowledge this work. None of those that have been sought and saved by Jesus Christ is excluded from the ministry of Christ. His purpose is one that calls all to take part. And if we would simply grow in Christ in patience and hope, one day at a time, our witness of his work cannot help but minister to all those we come across. And Zacchaeus, and he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. How quickly we should move when Jesus calls. How quickly we should move when Jesus calls. Not only did Zacchaeus make haste, but he received him joyfully. The gospel of Christ is one to receive joyfully. That's a joy. I, I, can't, I can't speak to the joy that there is in Christ. You know, there, there's, there's not enough within me that can share it with you. 
It's something you've got to experience yourself. But first, there has to be a brokenness of heart. There has to be a brokenness of spirit. There has to be that part of your life that says, I'm not good enough to be saved. Somehow, someway within your own life, pride needs to be broken down. Pride was in mine. I'm an Italian, so I can be pretty proud. You know, we're renowned from having hard heads. Third point, purpose that is acted despite opposition. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down, received him joyfully. And verse 7 says, And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Um, We're going to have opposition. You're going to be sharing the gospel, there's going to be opposition. If you're going to be sharing it faithfully, there's even going to be opposition against you by those that are also sharing the gospel. You know that? For some reason, we've got this fleshly tendency of jealousy. I don't know where it comes from. There should be a wonderful joy between all of us. If one person's sharing the gospel, we should be rejoicing that they're sharing the gospel. You're sharing the gospel? What did you do? What did you say? You know? What happened? Did they come to the Lord? You know? And instead, we find ourselves sometimes, not all the times, sometimes we find ourselves a little, little cut up, you know? Oh, Ballarat Church is growing, huh? Hmm. Well, they're probably watered down the gospel. That's what they've done, for sure, you know? They're probably introducing people that are sinners into the church, you know? Well, that's what Jesus got charged with. Well, Jesus isn't the only one. I mean, understand something. If, if Jesus is being criticised, the one who can't make mistakes, the one who can't be in error, the one who's never sinned, if he is being criticised, then, well, you know, think there's a chance that we're going to be criticised? I reckon. Paul was criticised. He said, would, you God, would to God you bear with me a little in my folly? And he goes on, he says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin, virgin to Christ. What he's doing at the moment, he's, he's struggling because there has been some uh, criticism against him. And he says in verse 7, he says, Have I committed an offence in abasing myself, that ye might be exalted, because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? For some reason, there was a concern that he wasn't receiving any money from the church there. He says, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you. And so will I keep myself. It's not a big deal, is it? It's not a big deal. I mean, where, 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 where this missionary actually receives his income from? And yet they were jealous about this. You know? They were jealous about this. It's not a big deal. And yet you find criticism whenever the gospel is being preached and shared. Christ has had, had his work, uh, he desired to accomplish and rejoice at the result, but he too was never far from opposition. So the Lord was always close to opposition, and so was Paul, and so can we expect to be. There can be criticism about our own work, and yet we do it with joy. Are you going to be doing it because your desire is to please men? Are you going to be sharing the gospel because your desire is to show off, to be boastful? We're not men-pleasers. We're meant to be pleasing the Lord with this work. 
need to hasten to my last point because I'm going a bit over time. The last point is a purpose that has eternal significance. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I'll restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Zacchaeus not only acknowledged the Lord, but demonstrated an, immediate, uh, an immediately changed heart to repent and to give and to restore. It's an interesting, interesting um, time frame. A reflection of what God has done within him is what that was. First, there came the acknowledgement of the Lord. Right? First, there came the acknowledgement of the Lord. Second, the repentance of idolatry relating to covetousness and money. As he says here, the half of my goods I give to the poor. So there was, there was a repentance of idolatry relating to covetous and money. Third, freely give, even as it was freely given to you. Where he says, if I've taken anything by false um, he says, my goods I give to the poor. So he's freely given. Third, uh, fourth, to restore and to rebuild. As by false accusation, I'll restore him fourfold. Interesting, it's a reflection of the work that's been done within him, he is outwardly now manifesting. You know? How interesting is that? The work that's been done within him, he is now manifesting outwardly. What God does in the heart of man is the greatest evidence of the gospel and eternity. So who is it that can change a heart like Jesus? Who is it that can change a heart like Jesus? Oh, finish with this testimony or story. I had a number of years ago a, a, a sort of a relation to the family. He came to me and he, and he, um, he called me up and asked to have a chat to me. Um, and I hadn't seen him for a few years. And I said, yeah, yeah, no worries, we can catch up. The guy happens to be a sheriff. You know that sheriff? You know, you, know, you know when you get a speeding fine and you don't pay the ticket? You know, they're the people that come knocking on your door? They lock the wheels and they, they take things. You've experienced that, yeah? Huh? He's a sheriff. I hadn't seen him for five years. I haven't even really spoken to him much. And he's called me and goes, you know, can we catch up? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, okay, no worries. Right, can I see you in ten minutes? I'm like, oh, all right, that's soon. Five years and you going to see me in ten minutes. I'm trying to go through my head the speeding fines. You know, do I, have I covered them all? Have I got them all? You know, so I'm a bit nervous and... Anyway, it, uh, he, he pulled up in my driver. He doesn't live too far away. And, uh, you know, he beat the horn. I went out and sat with him in the car and went for a drive. He was very, very serious. And he was very, very upset. And uh, we went and parked in this particular place. And he was sharing to me about his son. He was telling me that his son was several times on a train track. And phoned up his dad and says, I'm going to jump. Right? He said, jump. He said, do it. He didn't jump. He didn't have a lot of respect for his son. But his son was involved in criminal activity. His son was involved in 
uh, drugs. He had a terrible addiction to ice. Um, this gentleman was a sheriff. He says, I've tried everything. I've tried psychiatrists. I've tried the police. I've tried counselling sessions. I've tried, tried everything. He calls me. He calls me. You've tried all these professionals, you know. And he he said to me, "Look, he's he's been he's been violent. He's been violent at home. His behaviour towards his mother has been atrocious." He says, "I've kicked him out of the house. He's tried to commit suicide several times. He can't even do that right." That was. Understand that this is coming from pain. This isn't this isn't coming from hatred. Right? It's coming from pain. A lot of pain was in his heart. And oh, I said to him, what do you want me to do? What, what can I do? So I can only t- tell him about the Lord. There's nothing else that I can do. I can only share with him about Christ. I said, you know, you, you, you're, you're good parents. You're great parents. You, you know, you, you, you've, you've, got a, you've, got, you've got rules and you've got good ethics and good morals and good standards. But, but the problem that you have is that they see it, your kids see it, because you don't believe in God and you don't believe that God exists, um, see, they see it as just traditional things that can be broken, you know? But rules are there to be broken, aren't they? Right? And that's how they're looking at it. Why? Because you don't, you don't show them that there's a foundation to those rules. There's a foundation to those ethics and morals. So while you have them, because traditionally it's been handed down to your parents, well, it hasn't translated to your kids. All they see is rules that need to be broken, traditions that need to be run away from. I can only share about God. I can only share about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said to me, Ed, I don't care if he comes back singing hallelujah. I want my son back. just want my son back. Anyway, we ended up setting up some uh, times where we can actually get together and, and we spent some time together and, and uh, uh, he broke my heart. I mean, he couldn't think straight, he couldn't talk straight. The eyes had really, really mucked up his mind where he knew what he wanted to say but he couldn't get it out. He couldn't find the words. He couldn't find the words. It was all just a jumbled mess in his head. And, and I remember one time he was in the kitchen with me and, and, and he was saying... I, 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 busy, I mean, I'm talking, he was into some pretty heavy stuff and I'm not going to go into detail. But he goes to me, I, I just, I know what I've got to do. He goes, I know, and he's literally, he's sort of standing there in the kitchen and he goes, I, I know that, I, I know that I've got to walk this way because I know that if I go that way, I know where that's going to go. I know where that's going to end up. But, but I sort of want to, I sort of want to go that way just for a little bit and then, and then maybe, maybe cross and he just stood there and cried. Just cry, pour out his eyes, just so confused, I don't know what to do. See, that way, it's the easy way. That way, quick money. That way, settle all my accounts. That way, safeguard my family, quick, easy. This way, it's a narrow path. It's a hard path. It's a difficult path to walk, to do. I just want to get there and maybe shortcut cross. What you want to do. Anyway, a little bit of time went by. We talked a little bit more about the Lord. He knew about God. 
He believed that there was a God. He didn't know what to do. He um, came knocking on my door a number of months later. This is over a period of 12 months. I'd actually employed him for a little bit of time and set some rules in place. And um, He tried to get off the ice and was finding that very difficult. He was, a, he was just a prolific liar. You know? I even set some boundaries and I said, right, if you, if you call me in the morning that you're not going to be coming into work, you're not only going to lose that day, you're going to lose two more. And he asked, really? Uh, yeah, really. You've got to get out of bed, come to work, tell me you're sick, go home, you can work again the next day. But if you're just going to call me, you lose three days. Hard yards, yeah? Hard yards. And I had to be tough. I didn't, I didn't like it, but I needed to get him out of bed because I knew that was half of his battle. Now his bed, I have to tell you, was a blanket of sweat. Okay? His bed is a blanket of sweat. Addicted to marijuana, addicted to ice. He, he, he was just... Mate, it's amazing what this stuff does to people. Okay? Finally, one day, I think it was a number of months later, four or five months later, came to my house and they were in the lounge room, spoke a little bit more about the Lord and the Gospel. And I said, when? He says, I don't know. I said, why not now? He goes, okay. He came to the Lord that day. Came to the Lord. He believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this friend, his father, said something to me that was interesting. He says, I'm a sheriff and I deal with some pretty bad people. Very bad people. People that you would know because they've been on the news. He goes, and I don't know what it is. He goes, but I've seen some of these people become Christians and they've actually become good citizens. That's why I'm hoping. This young man today has been clear of ice for the last two years. He is working solidly. He's gone back to his apprenticeship, which he's going to complete. We have conversations that would blow you away compared to the ability. Talking to him before was like talking to a monkey. You know, I've got no sense out of him at all. All of a sudden now he's speaking clearly, he's thinking clearly. He's working very hard. He's not quite at church, but he knows the Lord. He knows the word of God. He knows where he should be. And you know what? The father that said, this boy, my door's open like that big. But I'll tell you, Eddie, there has to be a different man. This is his words. There has to be a different man that walks through that door. You know? And at the time, I thought, man, a new man. has to be a new man. has to be a completely new man. He's been welcomed home. And he's been welcomed home with open arms. His father still stirs him up. But he is doing really, really well. He's become a responsible person. He's paid off his debts, paid off his bills. He's settled his accounts. Um, it's a changed life. And you can't but praise God. You know, we are only seeing the tip of the iceberg because we're seeing something that's done in a temporary life. If you could only see the change that's been wrought in eternity. We're praising God because the temporary life's been changed. Do you want to see what's actually happened in eternity? Change from hell and a lake of fire forever without change, without hope, to eternity with God and glory and fellowship with the saints and rejoicing forever. 
That's what's changed. Temporary picture that we see on the outside is the tip of the iceberg. The rest of it's under the ocean. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the power of the gospel and the word of God. We thank you, dear Lord, for the glory of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, and all that he's done and all that he's came to share. His life was given as a ransom for many, dear Father, if we would believe it, if we would trust in it, if we would share the good news of the gospel, if we would go, and we would understand our purpose now is to be wrapped up in yours. I pray, dear Father, that you would bless this congregation and that they indeed will have a revived spirit within them and a hope for the lost and an understanding of the plight of man, that they would share the gospel of our Lord and bring many to salvation. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.